it for announcements. Uh, so let's get started. You know, uh, we, uh, we've come to the beginning here of chapter 9 in Matthew. And for those of you who are not acquainted, acquainted with us here at New City Church, our custom is to preach through books of the Bible. Now, we'll occasionally do a, uh, a topical series here and there. We just finished one up a couple of weeks ago, but uh, we like to preach through uh, every book as much as we can, the books of the Bible. So we're here in uh, chapter 9 this morning, and I'll be handling the first eight verses. So I'd like to ask you, please stand for the reading. It's Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority. To men. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is truth, and it's right in front of us today. We have this story of a paralytic who was healed and he was forgiven. Father, the truth that's in this passage, I pray that I would get out of the way and that you would take over. Uh, write the word on our hearts this morning that it might edify us and glorify you. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're still here in in the second of five major divisions or major blocks of teaching in Matthew. You may remember that there's five discourses or five blocks of teaching that Matthew has uh, set up to organize his book. And here we are in the second of five, chapters 8 through 10. And chapters 8 and 9 focus on nine specific miracles that reveal the authority of Jesus. Now, the Gospels uh, give pretty significant attention to the authority of Jesus. And this word authority is, is exousia in the, in, the, in the Greek. And what that means is it's a divinely given right and a divinely given power to act. A divinely given power and right to act. And it's a cosmic power cosmic power with a special human reference. No other man or woman on the face of the planet has ever been given this authority. It's been given and granted to Jesus alone. So up to now in chapter, or through chapter 8 and into this, or this, excuse me, this chapter, chapter 9, we've seen Jesus demonstrate his authority over numerous things, over human illness, over the natural forces of the world, and over the demons, the supernatural. And so Before we really take off into it, I want to draw your attention to the the phrase at the end of verse 2. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is the central message of the Bible. It's the central message of Christianity that sins can be forgiven. 
This message is exactly what distinguishes Christianity from everything else, from every other religion, every other uh, worldview, every other religious system, and every, everything there is out there. Christianity is set apart by sin can be forgiven. The most wonderful message that humanity uh, has ever received from God is that a sinner can know the full and complete forgiveness of sin, and that's the miracle that we're looking at today. So let's get started here. We're going to get into verse 1 and verse 2 to take off. This is Matthew. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So here, Matthew records a significantly shortened account uh, compared to the parallel passages in Mark and in Luke. And when we look there, we can see that they've recorded Jesus was at home. He had a home in Capernaum. And a crowd was gathered in the, in the house, and it was because Jesus was preaching in that house. Uh, and among that crowd, we see that there are the teachers of the law and the religious leaders of that day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And I'm going to describe real quickly a typical house just for the picture because we've got a scene coming up here. A typical house in Galilee would have been a one-story house, and the roof was flat, and it was constructed with heavy timbers laid across, set on the walls, and within those beams, of, you know, those timbers uh, were covered with branches and reeds and thatch, and all of that mess was bound together with mud and with clay, and it was pretty sturdy, actually. They spent a lot of time up on the roof. Well, each house, <clears throat> excuse me, each house had a staircase that was attached to the exterior of, it, of, of the house, and that gave people access to the roof. Uh, the roof space was used quite often and for various things. It got a lot of use, kind of like our patios and our decks at our houses. So taking a moment to describe the house a little bit because there's a pretty unusual and dramatic scene that unfolds in this place. So the parallels in Mark and Luke, uh, they go on to, uh, to say that there's no room in the house. And the reason there was no room in the, in the house is because people were crowded into it. There was a standing room only situation there and people were uh, pouring out of the door. And so on the porch, if there was a porch right there, the front door, people were mobbing up close to it, trying to crane their ears to get into or to hear what Jesus uh, was, was teaching. There was four men, though, too, that Matthew, or excuse me, that Mark and Luke uh, revealed to us, four guys who were carrying a friend of theirs. And this friend was, uh, was a paralytic, and he was lying on the bed and they were trying to get him to Jesus, and they were obviously trying to get him to Jesus uh, for healing, because what we've, seen, what we've seen in terms of this narrative is that that's what Jesus has been doing. First he preached, and then he preached with authority, and now he's backing up that preaching authority, that word authority, with his power, with his miracles. So they can't get Jesus, or they can't get their friend to Jesus because of the crowd. This uh, standing room only situation, there's only one door in the house. They can't get in to see Jesus. So uh, with some industrious ingenuity, they, uh, they took him and they went up the stairs. They set him down on the roof, and then they began to excavate. Mark says they pulled the roof off. And uh, that was their level of desperation that, uh, that they had there to get to Jesus. Meanwhile, inside the house, it's packed. 
and Jesus is preaching. And so if, you're, if you put yourself inside the house there, you're, you're, you're listening, you're sort of you're craning, you're listening for every word, hanging on every word that Jesus is preaching. Uh, then suddenly you hear a little commotion on the roof. You might think it's, uh, you know, a camel got loose or somebody, you know, the kids are playing up there, but there's commotion going up, uh, up on, the, on the roof. And suddenly there's, now there's pieces of roof falling down and there's mud and there's chunks and there's dust and there's br you know, branches and leaves. And you're beginning to look up and you go, uh, what? You know, then there's probably a murmuring going on. Who knows exactly what they're saying, <laughs> what they're thinking. But then suddenly the hole gets big enough that they lower this man down, and he's sitting right in front of everybody. You know, the stuff's falling in, and people are having to dodge all of the debris that's coming down. It's already packed, so they're trying to make room where there's no room. And they get this man down, and Jesus is standing right there. Uh, but the, the text itself doesn't provide much detail about this man, this paralytic. And it doesn't provide much detail about his friends beyond that he's paralyzed. There's no words. They say not a word throughout this entire passage. But the astonishing thing or the amazing thing here is that, or is how determined they are to get their friend to Jesus for relief. You know, they carried this man for who knows how far to find him. Uh, they heard that he was in the area. They knew that he was a healer. Uh, but they may have not even lived there in Capernaum. Who knows? It's not, it's not told us. Uh, plus, they seriously damaged someone's roof. That's kind of a thing. And they, and they interrupt Jesus' teaching. And again, he's known for his authoritative teaching. So people are really interested in listening. And this preaching is now interrupted. So the man's down on the deck. And there's probably a quiet. And suddenly, all eyes. Excuse me. All eyes are on Jesus to see what he would do. Verse 2. And when Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus was well known for his preaching. Jesus at this point was well known for his healing. But he says, your, your sins are forgiven. Uh, if any of you have a dog and you make a funny sound with your mouth, you'll see him cock his head like this. I, I imagine there was a re, you know, some sort of a reaction like that. Like, what? What? Your sins are forgiven. This man did not come for that. He came for healing. There's nothing in the text that tells us that this man came for forgiveness. He definitely came to be healed. These men went to great lengths to get this man, to get their friend to Jesus. They must have exhausted every other avenue that was out there available to him or to them. Uh, there were physicians in that day like there are physicians today, but to repair and heal completely uh, a man or a person with paralysis was impossible. He was looking to be healed, and they knew that Jesus could heal him. So why forgiveness? Why, why are we going here in this passage, or why did Jesus take this tack? Why forgiveness and not healing? Well, a good doctor will not just merely treat symptoms. A good physician refuses to treat the symptoms alone but chooses to go after the root of the problem. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's going after the root. Well, this man's paralysis may or may not have been a direct result of his sin. It's possible that he did something you know, dumb 
and got himself hurt badly. That's possible. The text doesn't tell us that. But it doesn't, it doesn't say that there's, you know, it's a direct result of the sin that he's committed, but there's nothing in the text that can lead us to that conclusion. We have no idea where he came from or what happened to him. Well, I'd like to add something here before we get too far into this, this verse, is that the prevailing belief at the time was that any disease and you know, illnesses, they, they were a direct result of some specific sin that the person had committed. Uh, but that is not what the Bible teaches. And, well, maybe you remember uh, Jesus' disciples asking him about a man who was born blind. In John chapter 9, we've got a, re- a record there of the disciples saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, although the, the disciples were correct in the sense that sickness is linked to sin, it's got a link to it. But remember, if sin had not entered the world, world there would be no sickness, there would be no illness. Uh, but the disciples were wrong, though, by echoing the thinking of the day that when you're sick, you're sinful. Uh, you remember the book of Job. This book provides a clear example of this wrong thinking as well. It's a story of Job. Um, his family was wiped out. His livelihood was ripped away from him, and he was stricken with a terrible skin disease. And his, kept, his friends kept telling him that you've got problems because you're sinful. The thinking was that there's a direct and almost linear relationship with your sin or a sin that you've committed. So I wanted to clear that up because that's not what this passage is saying. It's a fact, though, that when sin came into the world, death came with it. And so did disease, and so did sickness, and everything else that leads to death. Sin is the root of all suffering. And here in this episode, Jesus demonstrates his authority over all of our ailments. He goes after the root. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. This address that Jesus gives to the man, my son, this word, Technon is an affectionate address. It indicates that there's a relationship that's formed by the bonds of love and of trust as, uh, as a parent with a child. Now, this man was not a child, but Jesus says, take heart. Take heart, be of good courage. My son, my child, my daughter, he's talking to his child. Your sins are forgiven. This word forgiven, afiemi. It means to send away or to let go. And this is remission. This is remission of sins. And what does that mean? It means to cancel a debt by not demanding that debt. It means to release or set free from guilt. It's full and it's complete. And this is one of the, uh, one of the uh, scriptures that we use for our confession and pardon, Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, this is the deepest and most profound need of a human being, and that is to be forgiven of sin. So I'll ask you, are you aware of your need? Well, we know the end of the story. The man is healed from his paralysis, and we'll see why that narrative ends this way. But I firmly believe, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that it wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered if this man had been carried into Jesus and dropped through the roof or if he walked in perfectly healthy. He, like everyone else who comes to Jesus, bore a burden of guilt, and Jesus addressed that man's spiritual condition. The paralytic had just been burdened, or he had this burden removed from him 
absolutely and completely, which is far more important than any physical healing. You know, as I studied this passage uh, these past weeks, I, I thought that it had to be that because Jesus knew exactly where he was headed. He came from heaven. He's on the earth. He knows where he's going. He's got his mission from the Father. It's been decreed since uh, before the foundation of the earth. Uh, he knew it. He knew where he was going. But this event, did it somehow cause a stir in him? Did it, did it cause a stir inside of himself? And, and I wondered that because, you know, this would be another one. This paralytic would be another one for whom he would come to bear the righteous wrath of, of God, of a just God. Just a wondering. I've got a sense, though, that he had a full understanding of that. So now we're moving into a section here where Jesus begins to defend his authority to forgive sins. This proclamation that Jesus made, your sins are forgiven, no doubts, and a ripple through the, the entire crowd that was in that house. And this proclamation elicited something. It elicited a response from those expert theologians of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and I'm calling this response the ignition of rage. The ignition of rage. Verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Blaspheming. Why were they thinking blasphemy? They didn't say anything. They just thought it. They were thinking blasphemy. Well, I think it's, uh, it's apparent that, or we should understand that the teachers of the law and the religious leaders of the day, they knew their scriptures. They knew their Bible. And they knew that it was only God himself who had the authority to forgive sins. Only God can do that. It's God's prerogative to forgive sins because it's God's holy laws that are offended by sinners. But Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking to themselves, this man blasphemes. They're thinking that Jesus is taking out, uh, talking as if he had the authority of God. He's putting himself in the place of God. Uh, just a side note, this has to do with the rage that I was referring to a minute ago. Uh, this is just actually the beginning of the opposition that Jesus would, Jesus would face for the rest of his ministry, for the rest of his life on the planet. From here on out, it's just going to intensify. They're going to try and trick him. They're going to try and trap him. And it's going to get to the point where they'll actually call down a blood curse on their own heads and on their children so that they can finally be rid of this Jesus. So here's where it starts. Well, it's at this point in the narrative that Jesus takes up a defense. He takes up his defense of the claim that he makes to authority. Verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now he's asking this, this question in response of their thoughts of him, blaspheming. They were thinking it, he knew it, and he asked this question in response of it. He says, Why do you think evil? It's important to understand what evil is here because it gets thrown around a lot these days. In this case, or in this sense, uh, it's an adjective, ponera. It indicates one who is opposed to God, one who is morally bad and opposed to God. So he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Well, it's because evil resides in the heart. This opposition to God resides in the heart. And ultimately, it's the heart that devises these schemes and these plans and plots against God. Jesus I'll point out, is not wavering here. He's defending his divine authority, and he's doing so with some vigor. So he answers back to them, and he, and he makes this argument with a test. It's a test question. 
He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now notice, there's no, uh, I don't know if you have your Bibles open, but there's, there's no response. The scribes don't say anything. They're just, in fact, Jesus is the only one doing the talking in this passage. But there's no answer. The scribes don't answer. There's just crickets. You know, perhaps they took a bite of food or a drink of water, and then with their manners, they didn't want to open up their mouth and talk with a mouthful or something. I don't think that's the case. They had no answer. And they had no answer because there's nothing, I mean, there's no, neither one of these answers is easier than the other. They're both impossible. They're both impossible for man to carry out. No man has the authority to say your sins are forgiven. And no man can tell, tell a paralytic to stand up and stop being a paralytic. It's impossible. You can't say that. Well, the question actually is, you know, it's an interesting question. On the surface, it seems like the easier thing to say is that your sins are forgiven. And the reason that would be is because there's no visual evidence. You can't see sin being forgiven. Uh, there's no way to test it. And there's no way to know whether or not it's actually happened. So that might be the easiest thing to say. The real test from a human standpoint would be rise and walk because the tougher thing to say, obviously, because if he doesn't get up and walk, you just made a fraud out of yourself. So again, the, on the surface, the, two, the easier the two options appears to be your sins are forgiven. It's easier to say that. What's the point? What's the point of the question? And what does Jesus mean when he asks, which is easier? Well, we're going to move into our last section of the teaching here today. In verse 6, it says, and this is important, it says, but you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So he answers the question, or he answers the reason for the question right here. He said, it's the Son of Man. The Son of Man. In the Gospels, the title Son of Man is used exclusively by Jesus when he's referring to himself. It's, uh, it's what he says when he's speaking to his friends. It's his favorite title out of all. I think there's probably 60-some times where it's used in the four Gospels, and it's always used by Jesus referring to himself. So who is this Son of Man? We see it, obviously, in the Gospels, as I mentioned. It's, out, it's mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament. I believe Acts is one of those spots. But it goes back to the Old Testament, and in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, we get some insight into who this son of man, who this person is. So, you know, I'm not going to get heavily into it today, at least not a, a full walkthrough of Daniel 7. So I'll ask you to take a look at that this afternoon or this week, Daniel 7, and you'll get an idea, a better idea of this son of man. But I'll summarize briefly this Daniel passage. The son of man... Uh, was designated by the Ancient of Days, the Father, to be the judge of the world. The Son of Man is said to have come from heaven and then returned to heaven. He's heavenly. He's a heavenly being. The Son of Man is not from the earth, and he's, he's God incarnate. So this is why Jesus asked the question. Why? Why he asked the question, which is easier? And the answer is, so you may know that the Son of Man has authority and the power to say, your sins are forgiven. It's a heavenly authority. It's a delegated authority. And it's a divine authority. If the Son of Man says your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. It's done. And then he said to the paralytic, he said, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
and immediate obedience. He rose and he went home. The greatest thing that happened in this man's life happened that day, but it was not the miraculous healing of the body. It was the forgiveness of his sin. His guilt was cast away. He was at peace with the living God, the peace that surpasses all understanding. The deepest and most profound need of his soul was satisfied that moment in Jesus. And that brings us to the last point this morning. Verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Here I want you to see fear. The sense in which this word fear or phobio is used uh, is to be seized with alarm. Uh, the crowd was afraid in that moment. Uh, they knew that Jesus was in, in their midst, and they knew that he was a man, but they knew that God was there, and that he had given power to that man, Jesus, and they were afraid. It reminds me of Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah and his vision, uh, the great catch of fish that Peter had, um, the transfiguration. Anytime a human being comes into the manifest glory of God himself, there is great fear. And as Christians, as the church, we too are to walk in the fear of the Lord. That's our command, and that, that should be our desire, to walk in the fear of the Lord. It's basic to the Christian life that we be in reverence and we be in awe of him constantly. I'm afraid that's not always the case. It's the fear of God that brings true repentance. It's the fear of God that really is the source of all Christian living. It's working out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Jesus forgives. He forgives sins, past, present, and future. In Christ, the burden of guilt is cut loose, and I hope you know that forgiveness. This message of forgiveness is the greatest message that God has ever given to mankind, and it's the message that we have to share with the world. Amen. Well, as we do every week, we're going to come to the table. This table is for Christians. And if the Lord has saved you, you're invited to the communion table. This is where we take the elements and the bread and the wine, and we eat and drink together in gratitude and remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you